I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. I think I'm being amplified. You know, government's always somewhat broken. <laughs> um, governance is the long-term view. Governments come and go, but governance is this kind of slow process. But it may be one of those kinds of evolution that's periodic, and so things don't seem to change for a long time, and then they need to change, and they do. So the governments are always slightly broken, and they're always slightly repairing themselves. But from time to time, they get so broken that bigger things happen. And you want those bigger things not to be a Russian revolution, uh, which breaks everything. But something more like a hundred-year change. And a man with a plan is Philip K. Howard. Thank you, Stuart, and thank you all for, for, for coming this evening. Um, and I especially thank Alan Intoven for coming and wearing a tie. Um, so I'm not the only person. Um, I'm from New York, and I sleep in a tie. Um, the, uh, before we dive into the, to, uh, what many view as the slimy quicksand of government, I think it's useful to remember who we are. We are citizens of the most successful, most progressive country in history. The country still has the strongest economy in the world. We still have a can-do spirit that's manifested in many places, but especially in this part of the world where there's so much creativity that's gone on over a period of my entire lifetime. We're people who have a can-do spirit. We can solve problems in our own business, in our own lives, and there's no reason in the world why we can't solve the problems that we see in government as long as we share a vision of what a healthy democracy should look like and we come together behind that vision. Now, I think we all probably, or most of us, would agree that there's something seriously wrong with government. This is the first time in history that Americans feel that our children's lives will be worse off than, than, than our lives. It's odd that we feel that way because we don't face an immediate peril. It's more like the quiet before the storm. There's this sense that we're adrift as a society, and around the bend there might be some precipice that we're going to fall off of. We don't know whether it's going to happen next year or in five years, but there's this looming sense of disaster, and there's no confidence at all in the public that government can fix what's wrong. And indeed, there's every confidence that government is a big part of the problem. I also think there's no, no confidence in our political parties. My own view is that both parties are broken. Uh, Republicans, as you know, uh, have this mantra the no new taxes, which they advance uh, repeatedly and boringly, 
without any plan to cut government expenditures so we might be able to balance the budget. It's just no new taxes, as if taxes were independent of how much we spend. Democrats continue to expand entitlements for perfectly legitimate reasons, except without a plan to meet, uh, have our means meet our budget as well. So, so neither party is doing what's needed. I have a friend who runs the Progressive Policy Institute, Will Marshall, who recently said, it's not true that bipartisanship is dead in America. There's a perfect bipartisan conspiracy to bankrupt the country. <laughs> so we see this, we see this happening, but we feel powerless to do anything about it. We see this drift. The odd thing is if you talk to a political leader, a senator or members of Congress, they'll see it too. And they too will say that they feel powerless to do anything about it. So we have this odd situation where the people we elect to be in power themselves feel powerless, and we all see the same drift. So what I'd like to do in a few minutes this evening, and hopefully follow it up with Q&A, is to give what I think is the diagnosis to talk about some proposals that might work or might not work, and then ultimately come up with my solution, which is three fundamental changes in the structure of our government that would restore a kind of sense of responsibility and, and the ability to function. So first, the diagnosis. We feel powerless because we are powerless. The political leaders feel powerless because they are powerless. They're powerless because we're all powerless, because we're strangled by laws of our own making. If you look at an x-ray of a state capitol or of Washington, you see all these wonderful government monuments, and it looks good if you look at the picture. But if you look at the x-ray, you'll see a web of law and regulation that's gotten denser and denser over the course of our lives that looks like an impenetrable jungle. It is hard to do anything in this web. I was talking to Stephen Goldsmith recently, who's the new deputy mayor for operations of the city of New York. He had previously been mayor of Indianapolis, where he um, uh, was very successful as an innovator in, in, in good government. I said, well, how's it going? And he said, well, I've had eight really good ideas about how to make the government of New York City work more effectively. Unfortunately, each one of them has been illegal. It's almost impossible to build an important, uh, to create a green uh, uh, environmentally, environmental infrastructure because the way law works, it takes a decade or sometimes two decades to do a project. Last uh, year, a uh, wind farm was approved off the coast of Massachusetts after 10 years of study by 17 different agencies. 10 years. I mean, it's not that complicated. The next day, 12 lawsuits were filed to stop the project, claiming, yes, inadequate review. That will take another three or four years to wind its way through, through the courts. Balancing a budget, Andrew Cuomo is the new governor of New York. He goes into Albany. He finds that 75% of the budget has been set in legal concrete, in mandates and entitlements and contracts agreed to by political leaders, many of whom are long dead. He has to balance the budget on the other 
had a talk with Dick Reardon, former mayor of L.A., about how L.A. was going to balance it, but its budget. Same problem. They're going to balance it off the backs of schools and parks because those are two of the only items where the mayor actually has discretion given all the other mandates from the state and federal government they have to comply with. We don't normally think of public schools as a legal problem, but in fact, public schools are crushed by bureaucracy. A 2007 uh, study in California of why good teachers quit the California public school system found that one of the, the first reasons was a perceived powerlessness to do what makes sense because they had to spend their day complying with what they thought were senseless rules and filling out senseless forms. The group I chair, Common Good, um, did a study a few years ago of all the rules that apply to one, one, one school in New York City. Turned out no one had ever compiled this. Thousands of rules and laws from all sorts of, from all levels of government you've never heard of that applied. No one could possibly know all the regulations. So maybe the reason no one ever compiled it. So one of the things we did, we tried to do charts. So, well, if you really wanted to comply with the law, what it would require. So one of the charts we did was how many legal steps and considerations there were to suspend a student. Now remember, when you suspend a student, you're not sending the kid to jail, you're sending him home. Well, here's the chart that we came up with on all the legal steps and considerations to suspend a student in the New York City school system. No one could possibly, exactly, no one could possibly comply with this. So then we said, well, maybe New York City is an outlier, so we did the same studies in Denver. Exactly the same results. And it ripples into society. You know, the, if there's all this regulation in government, then pretty soon anyone who wants to start a small business, for example, well, essentially it's impossible to start a small business and comply with all the law because you couldn't afford the lawyer to tell you what all the law was. There was a report this past weekend about a couple who wanted to start a cupcake store in Maryland turned out they thought they could, but then the, the requirements kept piling up. First there was the grease trap, then the triple sink, and all these other requirements that might have made sense for a larger food service establishment, but not for a 15-foot wide little cupcake stand. So finally, finally they gave up. And I think it's hard to imagine how powerless people within government feel and what the culture of government is like. And while government's a big entity, there are 20 million people in America who work for government, and there are fantastic civil servants, I think we should say, who keep the trains running on time and deserve our undying gratitude for the work they do. The culture overall is pretty sick, and people are trained not to use their common sense. Former governor of New Jersey, Tom Kane, told me the story on his first day in office as governor, he went to the, his office in the state capitol in Trenton, found that his light bulb was out. He asked the state trooper on duty if he could find him a light bulb. State trooper went, 10 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, finally the trooper comes back and says, I found the light bulbs right away because I couldn't bring it up because I couldn't find a requisition form. Think about that. You could leave a post-it saying, got a light bulb for the governor. 
but he couldn't bring it up. So Tom Kane went and got the light bulb out of his lawyer's office and left his lawyer without the light bulb. So what happens in all of these stories is that we seem to have the wrong idea of the rule of law. We've been taught to respect the Constitution and the rule of law, and we think of you know, contract law and all the wonderful things about the rule of law, but all the programs and the examples I just gave are not timeless principles of right and wrong, like you can't steal someone's property or you have to respect contracts. They're simply ways of managing a complex interdependent society to provide services, whether it's schools, to approve uh, reasonable approval for environmentally important projects and the like. The point of those programs is to manage society sensibly, but the effect of those programs, the way they're written, is to prevent the people we elect or appoint from managing government sensibly. And so over the course of our lives, what's happened is that laws piled up like sediment in the harbor, and it's gotten to the point where no one can get anywhere, basically. And if you had to look at sort of who's making the decisions, you'd have to say, well, democracy is actually run by dead people. It's all these people who passed these laws and wrote these rules over the last 30, 40, or, or 50 years. It's like central planning, except that the planners are no longer with us. So it's actually a little worse than central planning. So we have this system where people feel powerless because they are, because there's all this law that prevents people from using their judgment. So what's the solution to this? Now, one, the conservatives say the solution is deregulation. There's too much government, we need to deregulate, get rid of get government off our backs, and that's, the, that's very attractive to, to adherents of the Tea Party. I'm sure there are many of you here tonight like that. Um, and there certainly are a number of vestigial programs, and we'll talk about that, 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 that we, could, we, we could do without. But the reality is that in a global, interdependent, anonymous economy, we need government for our freedom. We need all these regulatory red lights and green lights. I don't know who put, whether there's lead paint on the toys that go to my grandchild or not. You know, I don't know who's, whether the water is clean or the, or the air is pure. Somebody has to be the surrogate for us to, to safeguard all these common goods, and that's the role of government. So government's not going to become less important. It's going to become more important the smaller the world becomes. The other um, solution, and I've worked on a number of these projects, is what's known as regulatory reform. President Obama had an op-ed today announcing, in, in the Wall Street Journal, announcing a new executive order for regulatory reform, where he's going to appoint officials from each agency to go through the agencies and to get rid of dumb rules and to allow, uh, uh, get rid of dumb rules and allow people to use their common sense. We want we don't want dumb rules anymore, and he's going to go out and clean it out. The most ambitious of those programs was Al Gore's reinventing uh, government program with which I was involved, and it was incredibly ambitious in scope. We went across the agencies. We worked hard on, on streamlining environmental reviews. We uh, 
worked on procurement reform, and those reforms are still in place to, to stop wasting so much money. And, and you know, at one point, they had rules for, for buying computers that by the time the computers uh, arrived, they were five generations old because they took so much time to, to create. They're incredibly idiotic rules. It was very uh, ambitious and to a great degree successful, but all of those programs either snip stupid legal vines or they create clearings in this big bureaucratic jungle, but none of them have actually taken on the jungle itself. And what I've come to understand after working on probably a dozen of these with, with governors, mayors, and two presidents so far, is that we're never going to make government work effectively. In fact, it's going to get more paralyzed because of the inevitable growth of law until we take on the jungle. Because the reality is, is that the more significant the, the decision, whether it's to balance the budget or to approve environmental projects and such, the more flexibility is required. So a governor has to, to balance the budget, has to make cuts across the board. He can't be limited, as the mayor of L.A. is, to, to schools and, and parks. Well, that requires an open framework that allows cutting, not a framework where you're faced with, with walls of legal mandates that are decades old. It's the same thing with an environmental project. Some official actually has to have the authority to say go after a year or two. You can have a check or a balance in that, but somebody has to say, we've reviewed the effects of the wind farms and concluded that on balance, it's important, it's more important for society to let this go forward. Therefore, I approve it. We can have some check and balance to that, and that's it. The interstate highway system was authorized in 1956, and 15 years later, it was done, or substantially done. Today, the environmental review process wouldn't be done. Run a school, same thing. Principals and teachers need to have the same freedoms that people in parochial schools and charter schools have. They have to be free to be themselves and to focus on the students, not spend their day worrying about filling, filling out forms. So I think the solution is not deregulation, it's not just regulatory reform. I think America needs a new operating system. And the operating system basically would be to replace bureaucracy with individual responsibility, where you pull back law and law becomes a framework for goals and sets principles, but allows individuals to actually, in government to actually take responsibility for making sense of those goals and then are accountable for whether they do a good job. This is not the first time in history we've had to have a change, had to have a change in our operating system. It's the fourth time since the Industrial Revolution. We had the progressive era where we abandoned what was gospel, which was laissez-faire, because we discovered that you couldn't trust companies not to mangle child labor. Then in the New Deal, we realized we had to have social safety nets because the, these global economic trends were causing farmers to starve for reasons well beyond their control. And then in the 60s, we had the rights revolution when we discovered all of these abuses of racism and gender discrimination and pollution and other, other abuses that needed to get fixed, and so we fixed them. 
We're now at one of those points in history where we have to make another one of those changes. But now it's not a change of right and wrong. It's a change to make things work again because we have a paralyzed government. So in order to do this, I think there's a, um, a truism that I think is a truism. And if you accept it, you'll probably go with me. If you don't accept it, perhaps you won't. And the truism is this. Only real people, not rules, make anything happen. Nothing in life is accomplished by following rules or filling out forms or complying. And this is as true in government as it is in any other life activity. And if we don't create a framework that allows the real people within government the responsibility to make choices, it's never going to work. Getting there requires us to adopt three new principles of organization for modern government. And each of these requires us to toss overboard a sacred cow that everyone takes for granted. The first one is that we need to do a spring cleaning of all the law or all the law that has budgetary implications on the books. It's not to get rid of the law, but to make it work better. Today, Congress doesn't even have the idea that, that its responsibility is to see how old law works. It just keeps piling up new laws, like the recent health care bill, 2,700 pages. I mean, that itself is another subject of discussion on top of thousands of pages of existing, on top of existing law. They wouldn't go back and talk about the existing law because that might upset somebody. So they have this idea that once law is forged in the crucible of democracy, it should be treated as if it's one of the Ten Commandments, except it's one of the Ten Million Commandments. It doesn't work. And the effect is all this old law is like a millstone around our necks. There are subsidies from the New Deal probably on the order of 50 to $60 billion a year worth. So farm subsidies, for example, cost $15 billion. They were enacted in the New Deal when 25% of the country lived on farms. They were in danger of starving. So we created these subsidies. Now 2% of the country lived on farm, live on farms. Most of the farms, the big farms who get the subsidies, are owned by corporations. There's no danger of starvation. Yet we're still spending $15 billion a year. That's 100,000 families who pay each $15,000 a year in taxes, having all that money funnel out to mainly corporate farmers who own the system. Often there are laws that serve very important goals, but have taken a life of their own and need to be modified. Special education laws, very important. We need to take care of special needs children, but they ballooned into something no one ever anticipated now comprising over 20% of the total budget of K-12 education in this country. It's crazy. It's twice what it should be, twice what other progressive, socialist-leaning countries spend providing good care for special needs children. It needs to be reconsidered and rethought, not abandoned, simply, but just made, just made sensible. One law one change in law would actually help make Congress give it this idea, and that's to create an omnibus sunset law. And under this 
rule, basically all laws with budgetary implications would expire after 10 or 15 years. And what that does is it makes Congress deliberately act for the law to continue. That, in turn, gives reformers an opportunity to say, this law isn't working very well. This money could be better spent somewhere else. Because, and again, Congress doesn't acknowledge this, every public dollar involves a moral choice. If you spend it there, it's not available here. If you spend it on necessary farm subsidies, then it's not available for pre-K education. It's, it's absolutely a, a fixed law of, of, of equivalence, and yet Congress doesn't even take the responsibility. So number one is we need to have the spring cleaning, probably with a sunset law on top of it to make sure that Congress continually revisits uh, old laws. The second change is that law should be radically simplified. Law today is incomprehensible. You could throw a dart at any law, any statute book, any regulation, and pick it up, and you will see levels of detail that make no sense. Within 15 days after receiving an application, and eight days thereafter, you shall in the form. It's all about implementation. You could get rid of 95% of the words of law. There are about 100 million words of binding federal law at this point. You could get rid of 95% of them and change none of the substance of the programs. The Constitution of the United States, a very important and generally effective document, is 16 pages long. The law of monopolization, also generally effective, Sherman Act Section 2, is eight lines long. The Interstate Highway Act, authorizing the most significant public works in our country's history, is 29 pages long. There's no reason we have to write laws that are 2,700 pages that, that, that no one can ever read. You say, well, how can you simplify it? It's easy. You replace all the detail with individual responsibility. You have law set goals, have general principles, you allocate budgets, and you ask the department head to report back every year or every six months or whatever you want. After I wrote my first book, The Death of Common Sense, I was very critical of the Worker Safety Agency, known as OSHA. So I was summoned in to talk to the Secretary of Labor and the senior, senior officials at OSHA to talk about why I was so critical. And they said, they called me in, it was in this big room, um, and they said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, I think you ought to focus on safety, not on compliance with thousands of rules, because studies show that it doesn't do any good. It hasn't affected safety to make people go around with their noses in rule books, but what really does affect safety is creating a culture of safety and judging people by, by, by how well they train their workers and, and such. And they said, well, we, uh, but what would you do with all the rules? I said, well, I, you have 4,000 rules that specify exactly what kind of tools and equipment to use. Railings have to be exactly 42 inches high. At one point, there were 40 rules on wooden ladders, 4,000 rules. I said, all of those rules could be like one sentence. They said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, no, no. Tools and equipment shall be reasonably suited for the use intended in accord with industry standards. They paused. They said, well, that's sort of an idea, and then talked about it. And, uh, and they said, yeah, but, but, but then people won't know exactly what to do. And I said, well, maybe there'll be some disagreement at the edges, but let's just give the presumption to your agency. So if there's a reasonable argument, you win. But by and large, people know what that means. There are industry standards for things, so that means that the, 
the guy in an office who has a dime store hammer to put pictures up on his wall doesn't get a fine, which he got yesterday, for not having an industrial strength hammer, because he's not using it to build a house. He's using it to tack pictures on his wall. Let people use their common sense. They said, no, we can't do it because people need to know exactly what to do. So I said, okay, well, ask, let me ask another question. How many of you have ever read the rules? There were like 30 people in this room. Nobody raised their hand. I said, well, that's not surprising. I can guarantee you no foreman has ever read the rules and certainly no worker. So what good are they? Nobody's ever read them. There's just a bunch of tripwires that allow people to give you tickets. So why don't you go to something that, you know, lets people use their judgment and common sense and they can understand. Anyway, the meeting didn't end up that well. And, um, <laughs> uh, but in fact, the, the person who runs OSHA ended up becoming a really good friend and initiated all these programs. They didn't get rid of the rules, and they're back to enforcing them now, traffic cops. But, the, uh, but he initiated all these programs where they enforce the law based on actual safety and the culture of safety. And it worked much better. Actual you know, uh, accident rates went down in the areas where they did these, these projects. So you can actually make law work well if you focus on the public goal and you give people responsibility to try to implement it. So to summarize, the second point of simplified law, there are these three really important virtues to simple law. People can understand it. It actually allows you to go back and rewrite all the bad laws to make them sensible because you can never rewrite 2,700 pages times 1,000 laws. It would take, you know, 1,000 lifetimes. But you could write a bunch of 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 page laws. And the final virtue of simplified law is it gives people a chance to use their judgment. Absolutely critical because it pulls law away into a framework, which is what law is supposed to be. The third change, that this is, if anything, the biggest change, is that public employees have to be accountable. Today, accountability in government is virtually non-existent, at least for, except for political employees. Most workers are not accountable. You can never have a system like the one I just described that gives officials the authority to use their judgment without accountability. It's like a law of organizational physics. There's no need for detailed rules telling people how to do their job if they can be accountable if they do a bad job. That's why it's so important to get rid of teacher tenure. It's not because there's so many bad teachers. It's because if you get rid of teacher tenure, you can get rid of all this horrible bureaucracy that, that is killing the teachers and suffocating them. You don't need the bureaucracy telling teachers how to teach a classroom if the ones that aren't doing the job can simply be told to go do something, do something else in life. It's absolutely critical to overhauling government. It's not something, except in the teacher context, it's not something that's even on the table because there is a sacred cow here. And it is more sacred than any other cow. And the cow here is that you can't subject public employees even to the hint of accountability from any political figure because ultimately political figures run these agencies. That's what democracy is about. And if you do that, the myth continues, 
We'll have a return of the spoil system. Oh, my God, there'll be guys with yellow plaid suits with rolls of $100 bills and all kinds of terrible things. Government will work terribly. Now, it's hard to imagine that government could work worse. But that's the, there's this kind of fiction that keeps us there that we have to insulate public employees from accountability to avoid a return to the spoil system. Well, it turns out that that's a complete myth of history. The spoil system had nothing to do with firing. The spoil, I mean, the, the, the civil service system, the civil service system got rid of spoils by creating a neutral hiring system. So the politician couldn't appoint his friends or campaign supporters to a job. The jobs were going to be hired by the Civil Service Commission. People would be hired on the basis of merit. It's called the merit system. It had nothing to do with firing. They would keep their jobs on the basis of merit. So if you went back to what the civil service system was intended to do, you would have a system where you could easily have neutral hiring. There, again, there are many really wonderful civil public servants. And if they do the job, then fine. But if they don't show up for work, or in, there are all these cases of felons who, who are not allowed to lose their jobs because the tenure is virtually, virtually ironclad. And what happened with civil service this happens with all special interests. The, the special interests ended up capturing the politicians. Within 20 years after civil service reforms in 1881, what had happened is that the, they had figured out how to make themselves indispensable politically to the politicians. So they got uh, legal reforms that, uh, that basically insulated them from accountability. Later they formed... They, they formed unions. Then they became large campaign contributors. At this point, they're the largest campaign contributor, public unions, to one of the parties. I forget which one. The, um, they become incredibly, they, it is said that they own Sacramento, said that they own Albany. I don't know if that's literally true, but you get the, 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 the sense of it. And some of the deals that they've made with this power have been incredibly insidious and destructive. These sweetheart pension deals where people retire at the age of 45 with a lifetime of pension that's double sometimes what their average compensation was because they beef it up with vacation pay in the last year and, and overtime and, and, and such. So you get all of these abuses because the people who are supposed to be serving us, some of them, have organized into these powerful political entities that both keep them from being accountable and make them run government for their own benefit. The story came out last month that there's a juvenile detention center in New York State that costs $50 million a year to run where there are no inmates. Why is it open? Because there's a law put into place by the public employee unions that says that any state facility that has union workers cannot be closed without a lengthy process plus at least one year's notice. So the taxpayers lose $50 million at a minimum because of this feather bedding law, basically, that nobody noticed that a politician went along with for short-term political gain with long-term costs to, to, to the common good. 
So I'm at the point where I'm getting to my conclusion now. I've given what I think are three basic changes to restore responsibility, and I think it's not surprising that we feel that our government is adrift. It's not surprising because people aren't free to take responsibility. There's no accountability. We've got a government that's basically organized to fail. And so we ask ourselves, well, why have we put up with this? Why have we had this system that we see working worse and worse and now, you know, leaving us sort of facing a waterfall at some we're going to plunge over if we don't do something about it. And I'm afraid the villain here is found in the mirror. We've organized our government to avoid bad choices, anything to avoid bad choices. And this is the one place where all sides come together. Liberals are terrified that corporate interests will use their power to squirm out of legitimate regulatory obligations so they want law to be as precise as possible to put legal shackles on those companies to make sure they can't get, a, get away with anything. Conservatives feel the same way, except they feel it about government officials. They, want, they don't want to give government officials any authority to do anything because the government officials might end up acting unreasonably, and undoubtedly certain, some, some will. And who knows what will happen if you give any measure of discretion to a government official. So far better to have a legal system that ties their hands specifically so they can never exercise their discretion. And then there are the public employees, this kind of shadow force that people don't really, really talk about it. They really like this system, or at least their leaders do. I think it's actually terrible for the good public employees because it keeps them from, from taking the responsibility they want to take. But their leaders like it because it means they can't be blamed. Who's to blame now? Who's to blame that government doesn't work? No one. It's what Hannah Arendt said. It's like the blob. The blob has taken over. It's this giant legal blob. Public employees can say, well, we're just doing what the law requires. No, we can't do it because the law doesn't allow you to do it. No, you can't build that power line or those wind farms because the, the law doesn't allow it. So who's to blame? There's no one. And ultimately, I think, at least a lot of the blame comes to us. We're so scared of bad choices. We're so paranoid of letting anybody make a bad choice that in our society today, no one has the authority to make the good choices. So how do we actually make something like this happen? Well, we have to take some smelling salts and wake up and see it for what it is. We have to come together behind a vision, and we have to acknowledge that Washington and Sacramento, they're never going to make these changes. The last governor in this state would have liked to have made these changes. The current governor would probably like to make these changes. But he can't because he's surrounded by a system he can't at the moment that allows him to make those choices. And he won't be able to unless the public mobilizes and organizes itself around a vision demanding a dramatic overhaul of government not to deregulate, but to restore responsibility, to restore the ability of the governor to actually to make choices needed, needed to balance the budget. Uh, my not-for-profit, Common Good, hired, uh, recently hired the team that did Obama's, the web team that did Obama's campaign in 2008. And what we're doing is trying to build an online platform whose goal is to change the agenda for the 2012 election. 
I'm not going to support any candidate or either side. The point is simply to raise as an issue the need for the basic overhaul of government to make it functional again. And we think if we get people behind this idea and they have backbone and they tell political leaders that they're not going to support them unless they support this change in government, that will actually find leaders in both parties who are willing to stand up for overhaul. But they're not going to do it unless the public organizes because it's too radical and too dramatic and there are too many political risks to say we need to change the incentives in Medicare unless there's a large group that says we have to be responsible in every area of our law to give the ability to actually balance the budget, no, we're going to continue to get this baloney of no new taxes and don't touch my entitlements, which is the path to, the, the path to ruin for ourselves and almost certainly for, for our children. So we can make change. This is America. You can do whatever you want. But this change is not going to happen while we watch the news. It's only going to happen because we come together and force it. Thank you very much. Let's sit over here. Geez, we should be doing some fundraising for common. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I thought I was. <laughs> Funny thing. <laughs> That's what you promised. <laughs> we'll work that out. Um, do you have any good anecdotes? <laughs> so, so you know, we get in an uproar, uh, quite rightly. I, you know, this is bad, and this teacher thing is bad, right. and the green uh, infrastructure right. is tough. And, and where do you find inspiration, either in history or in little warm spots? Sure. Presently, good things are happening. Justinian was a really good friend of mine. And back in about 500 A.D., he, um, he decided that, in this case, it was a mess of too much law, but it was, it was judicial decisions in the Roman Empire, that he was going to, uh, to clean it up. And so he got three guys with pointy hats and, um, in uh, Constantinople, and they codified what they thought were the right principles of law, which then replaced this huge mess, these mounds of centuries of, of, of judicial decisions. And that recodification, by all accounts, sparked an incredible commercial renaissance in the ancient world because people actually could have understood what their obligations were. They actually trusted law more. It became, it was, and it became the basis for the legal systems of Western Europe for over a thousand years. And then uh, it became inevitably overly complicated itself. And the great accomplishment of Napoleon was, was Napoleonic Code, same thing. You got three or four people with pointy hats uh, told them to create a new system. He created a civil code of general principles like do what's reasonable in the circumstances, attracting good faith. These things don't tell you how to do things, but they're basic principles. Again, and that system is still the basis of the civil law countries, which um, in many areas have more reliable law than, than we do. We probably have the most reliable commercial law 
because in the 1950s, a bunch of scholars created something called the Uniform Commercial Code, a set of principles adopted by all the states, which gives us the most um, reliable system of contract law. You don't allow juries to decide whether or not you know, a contract was fair or no. That contract didn't work out. I should get my money back. You have a system of principles that don't allow juries even to hear that. So there are all kinds of examples of what happens when you, when you recodify law and how it changes the society. They're not funny stories, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. The they're, they're, anecdote doesn't necessarily mean a lot. I mean, Napoleon was kind of a funny guy, actually. I mean, yeah. you can, in his own way. Right. Uh, yeah, do we need to worry that Justinian and Napoleon were emperors? Um, well, there is that advantage, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, we've, we've made changes. Look at the rights revolution. We've made in the progressive era. This is not much different than that. One question came in anonymously. Uh, how do you define accountability? You lose your job. Say a little more. Okay, say a little more. Um, in... in in a job context, accountability means um, that, that negative things happen to you because you didn't do the job well or you acted like a jerk or whatever it was. So it depends on what the nature of the, of the, of the omission or commission was. But, but in any sensible organization, someone who doesn't show up to work on a consistent basis will lose their job. Mm -hmm. That actually is not true with government. Um, I was in the Army, and the deal... The Army's different. Yeah, the deal... Well, it is a government organization, you probably know. It's very socialistic, I right. must say. Um, and the deal there is the commander is responsible for all everything that his unit does and fails to do. Um, and you can't usually fire people, but, boy, you can move them around. Right. And... <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the sergeant who's not delivering gets demoted. Right. Um, and a lot of people, especially lately, have been through the military process under combat conditions where it really counts, life and death and all that. Is this a body of people that uh, have this understanding about behavior that we can now deploy in society? Well, I think the military is is unique because it's the military, but the military is highly functioning in times of, of crisis. In other mm -hmm. words, people in the field are trained not to follow rules. In fact, all the, all the military manuals tell you that if you worry about following rules, you're likely to be the loser in the, in the war game. You have to constantly adapt mm -hmm. to the circumstance in front of you. So they're trained actually to do the opposite of, of, of being bureaucratic in the field. Now, I'm told in the Pentagon it works a little differently. But, um, it's true. Yeah, but... And uh, in peacetime. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe in peacetime it works. But, but people I know who've been in the military have a very strong sense of duty, and they have a pretty clear sense of accountability. There's a sense of career professionalism was sort of an idea that was introduced a while back in the military. And lawyers and doctors have this. The whole idea of the professional is that <clears throat> you have a, a duty, a sense of responsibility to your calling. Right. Does that help in this kind of thing? Um, yes. I mean, culture always helps and professionalism helps. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things that's happened, I happen to be a lawyer, I'm, I apologize. The, um, no, no. The, the, uh, We've got to stop it. We've got to stop lawyers apologizing, right? right. They should okay. be proud. How okay. many people have you fired lately? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but um, yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> what was the question? Right. A little crowdsourcing here? Oh, professionalism. My profession sucks. See? I mean, there is no... There, the, the, it used to be, to get into a good bar association, you actually had to have people uh, write letters about your values, which included fair citations of cases and briefs and all the other aspects of a professional lawyer, where you, were, you, you fought fairly. Uh -huh. You accurately stated the facts. Now, you would try to shade them for your client. That's what lawyers do. But you weren't misstating the facts. And uh -huh. there was a line there you wouldn't go across. You would be, now, to get into the same bar associations, all you have to prove is you have a law degree and you've never been indicted. I mean, there is no sense uh -huh. of, of, of professional standards. And sure enough, in briefs that you see that go to court, I see weekly so-called respectable law firms misciting cases, mis misdescribing facts in ways that are not arguable. So I'm afraid professionalism, uh, in, at least in the law profession and perhaps in others, is degenerated in part because of all the things we've been talking about. So is disbarring dropped away? Is, is what? Is it harder to get disbarred now than it used to be? As um, you, you really only get disbarred for, for crimes. It's very hard to... Has that always been the case, or is that just what it evolved to? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm looking sure. at this I mean, accountability yeah, 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 you can lose yeah, yeah, your job. Yeah, you know, can you? yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's probably always been the case. Okay, and a question from Alexander Rose. Should we limit the number of laws at each level of government? Then you have to vote one law out for every law in. Well, there is this kind of... Uh, is, it a, is it a like a FIFO system? <laughs> you know, there is this kind of... Uh, uh, idea that for every new law there should be a um, uh, you know one taken off the books. Uh, you know, again, my sense is that what's more important than the actual number of laws is, as I said, is how the laws are written and whether they allow people to use their judgment in, in, in implementation. Um, but but I'll, you know, almost any procedural device that would make legislatures do what they don't do today, which is go back and revisit mm -hmm. old laws, mm -hmm. I think it's a good idea. So just a requirement that, uh, how about that the authors of the bill have to be able to recite it aloud without notes? Oh, boy, that would be a great one. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> there are people who would be able to do the 250-page laws that way. but Not many. Yeah. Question from Jeremy, looks like Canfield. Uh, will shifting to common sense laws require good judgment, therefore interpretation also shift the balance of power from legislative branch to the interpretive branch, namely the judges? Could the judges undo all of this legislative fixing you do? Um, it's very interesting. Um, there were, you know, there are three players here, the, the executive, the, 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 the legislature, and the judges. Uh, right now, everybody's kind of stuck in this dense legal web and they can't, and they're all sort of playing games within the web, but they can't really act. Mm -hmm. in, um, in, in my vision, 
implementation is with the executive, but they have to answer to the, um, to, to the legislature. I didn't talk about courts today, although I have a TED talk that talks a lot about judges if people want to, to, to hear that. But it's actually an important part of this that judges actually constantly draw lines about who can sue for what. And they, sh they can't allow disagreements between the legislature and the administrative branch to get decided mm -hmm. in court. There's a kind of paper covers rock mm -hmm. here. And so Congress is in charge of making legislative programs and the executive branch implementing it. If the legislative branch doesn't like it, it can change the law and bring the executive back into it. The courts really shouldn't have much to do with it. So would you like to see the courts basically playing less of a role in this sort of thing? Well, I would play less of a role when it comes to legislative judgments. There are plenty of roles that judges, the courts are going to have to play inevitably because there are going to be standards like, was there a good faith interpretation? Or, again, in my vision, the only thing that would be justiciable for an environmental impact statement mm -hmm. was whether somebody uh, created the environmental impact statement or evaluated it basically in bad faith. Mm -hmm. That still requires some judicial overseer mm -hmm. to make that judgment. So courts would have a role in many of these in, in, in application in a particular case. And, you know, you don't want to give up the opportunity to go to court for the extreme case when somebody really does abuse their authority. But judges have to be mindful that they're not supposed to reconsider every legislative judgment. They're only there to, to basically judge the outer boundaries of reasonable behavior. You mentioned the uh, omnibus sunset law. Basically, all laws right. um, shut down at a certain right. point have to be revisited, rewritten, or let go. Right. Is, so that's the kind of the schedule on the back end. And, but then you talk about the 20 years it takes to get wind generators out in the waters off of Cape Cod, is there the possibility, so a lot of this is scheduled, and with infrastructure especially, once you get it going, you know, you're just losing money every day that you're right. not actually digging ground right. and bending steel. So is there a reason, and maybe this happens sometimes, uh, where the law says, and this shall be implemented uh, in three years' time, or something like that, can you do that? Uh, sure, you can do that, and there are deadlines in, in laws from, from, from time to time. Does it work? Um, sometimes. But, I mean, when the, when the Southern California, um, or no, it's not Southern, when the California earthquake, mm -hmm. when, when was that? 89. 89? Mm -hmm. um, they basically waived all the, all the requirements for procurement laws, environmental reviews, all these laws basically got, get, got waived or accelerated. And as a result of which, you had, I think it was the Santa Monica Freeway got rebuilt and it was up and running again in a matter of months. It would have taken five years or eight years. To yeah, and we got the Bay Bridge rebuilt in a year's time. Yeah, yeah, the same thing. <laughs> no. We didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. It's been anyway. 89 to now. Right. Uh, so, um, 21 years and not uh, complete. It won't be for a few more. Um, now, so that's a classic case, actually. Of, And my friend Jerry Brown was one of the ones who helped slow that down by, you know, aesthetically saying it was not as pretty as it should be. Lots of things slowed it down. But, it, you know, 
what happens with these slowings down is the cost multiplies many times over every time. Once you're implementing, right. and one of the things that makes World's Fair sometimes work, in fact, um, critical path planning, PERT charts and so on, uh, first came into public with the Montreal World's Fair back in the 60s, which was brought in on schedule and on budget because it was somebody who knew how to do that kind of planning. That was leadership, it was authority, it was all the things you're speaking of. But it was also an exp there was a real deadline. Right. You know, it was going to open on a date certain. Right. Well, that, well, well you know, having a deadline is, is the best, but the next best is having officials who have the authority to say go. You know, if, if you mm -hmm. have a uh, requirement of environmental review and it's a wind farm, and wind farms are not all that different from each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they're slightly different, they're not that different. Right. I mean, they do have environmental impacts, but they're mm -hmm. not that different from each other. Somebody can look at the effects in this situs without spending years doing it. Uh -huh. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, so, so if you have someone with the authority to say go, and that's only subject to, to judicial review if it's exercised in bad faith, where they're clearly just ignoring the mm -hmm. impact, mm -hmm. then you can have something start to be built in a year. How do you detect bad faith? Uh, it's all a matter of judgment and the facts, and there's nothing in anything I talked about, whether it's how you run a classroom, how you mm. interpret bad faith, mm. whether it's a significant, whether the environmental risk is worth the benefit, or mm -hmm. none of those things. All of these things involve human judgment. And you can have on important decisions checks and balances on it, mm -hmm. but somebody has to exercise the judgment. And if you try to create a system that's hands-free, which mm -hmm. is what we've done, mm -hmm what we get is a system that's paralyzed. Some questions of what it takes to change. You mentioned the earthquake. That sort of uh, right. moved things along in some areas. Um, Don Kendall says, interest groups will never allow such a wholesale restructuring of our laws and rules. The only force capable of overwhelming objections is imminent bankruptcy. Does that help? Absolutely. There's nothing like bankruptcy. The... Um, uh, uh, you know, history tells you that times of big change only happens in times of crisis. So there is a likelihood that, um, that nothing I talked about, just to be realistic about it, is going to happen until people really feel they're about to plunge over the cliff. And the advantage of trying to build a coalition and a movement to reorganize government to be solvent and such is it allows, when that happens, the government to land at a place that's responsible. You don't have what might be happening in Tunisia or what happened in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So you get one group of people who push for change, and then before they know it, they're out too, mm -hmm. and you get all these lunatics running the, you know, running the society. So that's a likelihood of... of of what will happen if we wait till a crisis, we have no ideas, we'll get some lunatics who end up coming, you know, some Sarah Palin type will end up coming into power. I, I know you're all supporters of Sarah Palin too, but, uh, along with your Tea Party credentials. But the, um, you, you, you'll have some lunatic who will have all these crazy ideas about, quote, deregulation or stuff that won't work at all. Why did the American Revolution be a pretty much conservative responsibility-taking revolution where the people who started stuck with it right through it 
and the French Revolution, very similar, somewhat different situation, but drastically different process where exactly what you described happened. The French are all related to Sarah Palin. <laughs> you know, um, France, I'm actually just reading a book, a three-volume set, 3,000 pages, why I'm doing this. It's great for going to sleep. On the Hundred Years' War. Mm. Good. And, um, and this, this, uh, this flip in, it, through feudal culture of being um, completely subservient to the people in power, you know, as long as they had shiny helmets and they were around, but when they felt weak going in, in and killing them, it's just part of that culture. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened in 1789. Americans were, were, didn't want that kind of authority. They had a, uh, they, they had a town government. They, they basically had invented a form of democracy. It was, a, it, was, it was sort of an aristocracy, but it was a democratic aristocracy, who, our founders, basically. And, and that's the values that they adhered to. It wasn't one of let's topple the, the king. They did topple a king, but what they wanted was not a new king. They wanted to have their town meetings become the basis of a new union. So they were growing at, you draw attention to something which I hadn't really thought of, which is the, sort of the... Con the colonies were separate and separately organized. Pennsylvania right. was a different right. thing than Massachusetts. And they weren't a United States yet. They were a bunch of states trying various things and arguing and you know, occasionally having a little bit of interstate commerce and stuff like that. But by and large, they were going different paths and started to have a range of choices that people already had experience in working at, which was not the case in Paris at all right. in 1789, 1789. So, uh, or in 1989. Yeah, or, or, well. Uh, so now we have 50 states, and they have many counties, and those counties have many towns. And so there is a a place where things get tried that you don't have to bet the whole goddamn country on. You can bet one state at a time. Theoretically, so, but that, you know, that, that range of motion has been constricted by this, by this legal system that tries to prescribe not only that you must provide these services, but how you must provide the services. One of the terrible things about modern law is it makes it impossible, not impossible, very difficult for people to make a difference. So if you're a retired person in a community where there's a need for hospice care for people who are older, where there's a need for tutors for kids mm -hmm. and stuff, the bureaucracy you have to go through to perform any of those functions is enough to basically dissuade many people from doing that. Mm -hmm. And whereas in our founders' time, there would be zero. You would just go help out. So... Well, you know, we had got, barn raisings and all that kind of stuff. You know, people just helped. The the term for what you're describing uh, is subsidiarity. Right. It's something just, that World right. Bank and so on. If, you know, if we're going to give money to this country, you've got to push, uh, not try to run the towns from the country government. But any from any the towns. decision that can be made at a lower level should be made at a lower level. Okay. You so need to push decisions down to the ground. And this is supposedly what Jerry Brown now is trying to do with, with some of our state money, is that the money and the authority to do the, the right thing with it right. is going to the counties and to the cities. Right. So this is something you approve of, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. 
the more the more human freedom, the more individual responsibility in my world, the better. Doesn't mean you don't give up big public goals. Uh-huh. But Tocqueville had a wonderful line once. He said, "I much something to the effect of, I much fear." more the taking away of my freedom and daily choices to implement than I do some d- dictator telling me, you know, what my goals are. Because it's when I can't actually make things happen uh-huh. that I really feel the constraints of tyranny and I'm no longer, you know, uh, full as a person and all of that. It's, it's this web that presses down into daily choices that's a far more insidious invasion of freedom than telling somebody they've got to pay 50% of taxes instead of 36% of taxes or whatever. There's a behavioral thing here. Uh, what comes to mind is Neil Cassidy, um, who I knew back in the day of Mary Pranksters and all of that, uh, said there's only one sin, fretting. And fretting is a uh, national pastime, especially in parts of government, and uh, my fellow environmentalists are wonderful at fretting. We can imagine more things right. that can go wrong with this, that, or the other thing than anybody. And we will... <clears throat> I've noticed know, that, actually. Yeah, we will you know, bang on various legislators right. and judges and so on to um, be sure that our frets don't come true. And a previous speaker here was Jimmy Wales, who said uh, this is the... His software, he runs uh, Wikipedia, and a lot of his software people were spending a lot of their time designing for problems that they anticipated would occur with the system. And he said, that's crazy, because that's like a guy who runs a restaurant saying, well, we're going to serve steak, but steak involves steak knives, and some of our customers might stab each other, and so we'll have to put cages around each of the tables, and then we can go ahead and serve steak. Gosh, I never thought of that. Yeah, well, you know, it's a serious problem. (laughs) Many a law, many a a, a judicial finding has the quality of that people might stab each other with these steak knives, and therefore we've got to make it illegal to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So fretting is... We could go to the stand-up comedy part of this routine where we talk about what's happened to playgrounds and warning labels and... Do a playground. uh, You know, playground. I I mean, there is nothing left in playgrounds for a kid over the age of... Nothing. You know, seesaws, jungle gyms, climbing ropes, merry-go-rounds are banned. Gone. There are a few diving boards left, but not many. Not very many high boards. Why is that? They all involve not just the risk, but the certainty that something might go wrong. They also happen to attract kids to the playground so they don't get fat and die of obesity. <laughs> they, also, they, they, also, they, they also happen to... Uh, uh, teach kids how to take responsibility for themselves and, and to be athletic. There are all these things that those risks are vital for child development for, which the American Academy of Pediatrics and all kinds of other boring people would write books about. But we don't have a legal system that allows people to take the risk of allowing kids to take the ordinary risk of childhood. It's lunacy. So what it, it's complete so, lunacy. What, That's what, another example of, of what's you know wrong with this. What's the measure of acceptable risk? The values of what a reasonable people, person would consider at our time. A Model T was reasonably safe in 1910. Hmm. It would not be reasonably safe today. Our values have changed. That's fine. And so in the case of children's play, we happen to have people who study. 
Uh -huh. Dr. Stuart Brown down in the Valley runs the Institute of Play. He was, uh, you know, there, there are all these really important people who've actually studied the importance of, of children's play and what the scope of it should be. And that can help define what reasonable risks for children is. The range of exploration of a nine-year-old in America has, saw, has declined, declined by over 90% since 1970. Kids are not allowed to leave home by themselves. And that ability to wander around the neighborhood, to explore the creek, all that sort of thing, is absolutely vital to the interest level. The guy who was in charge of obesity at the Center for Disease Control said we wouldn't have a problem of obesity if kids simply did what they did 30 years ago. Because kids just get out and do, do things. They were active. Now, part of the problem is caused by you because Me. you've, yeah, you've created this industry here in this part of the world with Game Boys and all kinds of other stuff. So the kids sit in there, you know, they're transfixed by their electronic uh, gear that you made. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but that's not the only problem. It's also a legal problem. You think there should be a law against Game You Boys. should apologize. I've apologized for being a lawyer. You should apologize for... Sure, I'll apologize for anything. <laughs> a question always comes up in all of these things is, what about China? Um, you know, I happen to be following nuclear stuff. They don't have law. Okay. It's really, yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah. Westinghouse has had an AP 1000, 1.2 gigawatt, very safe, Generation 3 plus uh, reactor, nuclear, ready yeah. to go for 10 or 15 right. years. And uh, it'll probably be another 10 years before one is built in the U.S. China is building four AP-1000s as we speak. Right. And um, now, some people say the difference is, at least at, for the present, the Politburo consists almost entirely of people who are trained either as scientists or as engineers. We have approximately none of those in right. uh, a truly senior office here except by appointment. Right. Is this the difference? Or what's going on? Is there, they just, you know... Is China like we were, Teddy Roosevelt days, 100 years ago, when you haul off and do all kinds of things? Well, I think there is an aspect of that. It, they're also a totalitarian regime, which, which allows them to make um, those, the, those choices. We're back to um, Hadrian and Napoleon. Yeah, you know, right. Um, uh, but the same risk of bad judgments that has driven us to to you know, this lousy legal system uh -huh. has also driven us away from, in this case, my view is environmentally important uh -huh. technologies that have downsides to them, but on balance, I think, are very important, like nuclear power. I actually got my start working at Oak Ridge when I was a kid for a Nobel Prize winner called Eugene Bigner for three summers. So I'm not scared of nuclear power. I understand it a little bit. and. And I think it's a tragedy. You know, 20% of the electri electricity generated in this country comes from nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And um, we haven't built a nuclear power plant in how many decades? And three. Three, yeah. And so they're all going to go out of service. So what are we going to do? Replace them with coal? Is that what we want to do? Fusion, I mean, maybe. Kevin, I see you're on your way up here, which is good, because I have a question for you. You want to grab that mic right there by the uh, front of the podium? We're talking about China. And uh, you've just been in China. You said everybody you talked to in China was uh, <laughs> part of this conversation. Complaining, <laughs> complaining about the government. And uh, you know, here I am, sort of valorizing the Chinese government. What are they complaining about? And does it 
well, okay, feed so, into this conversation? Yeah, um, well, I, I don't know if it feeds into it, but just because you, you've shanghaied me here, so to speak. Uh, so to speak. <laughs> uh, I, I was just back from China, and I, I was met, meeting with a lot of people in Beijing, and I met with, I probably talked too close to 100 people, and I would say that every single one of them, without exception, was visibly, audibly, publicly complaining about the government, including the people who worked in the government. And they were complaining about almost a very similar thing is, is, is that there was no process for them to accomplish little things. If something, if something was wrong and they noticed it, they, there, there was no process for them to, no one to complain to, to appeal to, because the whole, the whole apparatus was sort of invisible, opaque. And so their, their frustration level was, was tangible. And um, they were basically telling me something was going to change in the next couple of years. They didn't know what, but they felt that the, 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 this sort of inability, this impotency to actually make change happen in a way that they could initiate. And, and it wasn't not talking about overthrow of the government. We're talking about solving the traffic problem in Beijing or um, solving some of the environmental problems. There was nothing that they knew how to start. Can they do anything locally in government there? The, the, well, there is local government that can be effective, but again, it's, it's not people that you elect. Who is it? There's somebody who works there. Who are they responsible? Who are they really um, taking orders from? It's all unclear. It's, it's some appointment by somebody that doesn't really have any accountability, basically. They're accountable not to mm -hmm. any of the citizens. And so the, there is a very similar kind of frustration. I don't know if the... The remedy is the same. If you would say, well, the remedy is the same in both cases, individuals, uh, clerks have to have accountability. But um, there are certainly the similar frustrations. So I don't think China is any kind of a model for where we want to go. Well, China is certainly so, not a model in other ways. I mean, th th there's no contract law that's any good in China. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's going to come to bite it. I mean, right now, it's incredible efficiency and devalued currency allows it to do lots of deals, and everybody wants to do it because they get products for cheap. But when people ignore their contracts, don't pay up on contracts, mm -hmm. or pay only 65 percent, long term, you can't you can't maintain a economic base that way. <clears throat> I see one of the things I was thinking about when you were describing the difficulty of like starting a small business without just yeah. automatically breaking the law, that this may be what drives people into the informal, basically lawless economy right. in many parts of the world, including probably here, much of which is crime, of course. Now, one of the advantages of crime is you don't have to ask anybody's permission. There's no bureaucracy. <laughs> right. I mean, the whole idea of organized crime, on the other hand, is right. that there is bureaucracy, and right. probably it sucks. <laughs> well, it was Hernando de Soto who did those studies in Peru about the black market. The bureaucracy was so dense in Peru that it created this incredibly vital economy. All the taxis were gypsy cabs. All the Everything was black market. And they created a parallel economy that actually ended up being a pretty good economy mm -hmm. that was completely... Uh, ultra or, or ex-legal, it's, you know, sort of outside the, the, for the, the formal, formal legal system was so dysfunctional. And finally, people are starting to study the informal economy, see how it works. One of the things is it involves everybody having to know each other. Here's a question from Danny Hillis. If more resources were shifted from federal to state and local governments, subsidiarity, would fixing government be easier or harder? 
Oh, I think it sounds it'd be like easier. 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 The closer you get to the ground, the easier it is. I mean, a lot of people in this room are going to know Gavin Newsom. If he has more authority, he's not bound by mandates and stuff, you can actually put more pressure mm -hmm. on him. It's one of the things that what we're talking about, it, what makes it hard mm -hmm. is a lot of what, what needs to change has to be changed in Washington. Mm -hmm. Many of the mandates that make it impossible to balance the budget are man Medicaid and other mandates mm -hmm. or special ed mandates that come from Washington. They're unfunded mandates. So we have to go to Washington to change it. So does it work up? Luckily, you have Nancy Pelosi here, and she's who she is. <laughs> Say a little more about that. <laughs> okay, suppose cities get themselves squared away, counties get themselves squared away. Does that work upward, or does it stop there? Uh, I think it can work upward. You know, ultimately, um, lots of people have said this. You know, we get the government we deserve. Culture trumps uh -huh. even special interests. Uh -huh. Culture will trump special interests. I mean, special interests are what, what makes it one thing we didn't talk about, but it's worth commenting on here, is that our founders never anticipated this problem. They didn't understand that it would be a hundred times harder to unmake a law than to make a law. They thought that the process would be just a lawmaking process and the factions would balance each other out, Federalist 10 and Madison and such, and then we would get some reasonable approximation of something that democracy thought made sense at that moment. In fact, it doesn't work that way once a law is created. Once a law is created, whatever special interests like the law unite around it. And so every law has an army of special interests around it. Mm -hmm. And to get one word of that law changed, a majority of Congress each has to run a gauntlet mm -hmm. of those special interests. That's why it's unthinkably difficult. Like, they recently, it recently came with the ethanol subsidy, which is mm -hmm. environmentally destructive, $7.7 .7 billion a year. It's just a freebie mm -hmm. to, you know, some companies in that business. Right. Um, so, and it, it had a sunset clause. So to show that that's not a cure-all, the ethanol subsidy subs sunsetted on December 31st, 2010. So there was a big debate in, in the fall with Republican fiscal hawks going up against the Republicans and the Democrats from the farm states. Right. And it looked like finally something good was going to happen, helped by the sunset laws. Well, God bless them, a deal was made on some other provision that extended the ethanol subsidy for another couple of years. I mean, Ugh. it's here we are in the middle of a fiscal crisis. You could take a vote of the members of Congress, mm -hmm. and 98% of them would say it's a complete waste of money, mm -hmm. and they extended it. This is a system that's broken. Peter Fechteau has a question. How do you see technology changing government in the future? Moore's Law is you know, going to apply another 50 years. It looks like tech, communication tech especially, is moving right along. Does it change government? Uh, absolutely. I think technology... Um, uh, recently, there was a report in New York State about a crisis of civil legal services for the indigent. Mm -hmm. And it told a story of... Uh, 
of literally two million cases a year in the New York State courts of people uh, who can't afford lawyers but who have real life problems, their landlord-tenant problems, are being evicted, their family law problems of custody, their uh, creditor collection cases. So these are real problems for, for these people. They can't afford a lawyer. They go into the regular court system. It's completely packed. They can't possibly negotiate it. Uh, it's terrible for the other side, too. They, you know, the, the judge ended up being eight postponements because people can't follow the rules. They're not lawyers, after all. Mm. Um, and so the judge was going to call for hundreds of millions of dollars of funding to hire more lawyers to represent these people. I mean, New York State's bankrupt. It's going to give hundreds of millions of dollars to lawyers to represent not, you know, There's no chance. So they sent me the draft report, and that's what I think. I said, well, what I think is you need to completely change the system. You need to create a system of ombudsmen using technology to keep track of everything that's going on with every landlord and every family so you don't have to go back to the same judge mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. You have like, it's like a patient database, except it would be a database for all these disputes. Mm -hmm. And if you have a, a database that you build up over time, of all these disputes, you can actually have ombudsmen that actually can reasonably competently hear the mm -hmm. story, s figure out who's playing games and who's not. Mm -hmm. And so the, the information revolution actually provides a mechanism for beginning to provide services that people really need in a semi, at least reliable way, because they can see how the whole, so for example, if there's a landlord, mm -hmm who's an abusive landlord, it'll pop up on the screen. This has been, you know, all these other cases have come up. So it's not bound by the laws of evidence. It doesn't have the rulings of law. It's just a decision in these essentially small claims type cases of great importance to the people involved in them. And technology can do that. Well, there's a funny mismatch. Technology moves pretty rapidly. You were talking right. about the... Uh, you know, procurement process that means that you get a computer that's five generations right. behind. And uh, famously, uh, many people here have lived in the outlaw area of cutting-edge technology that uh, the laws won't catch up with, the, the, you know, the legislators won't even be aware of right. for five or ten years. So we get to privacy, play. Privacy laws are, are a significant problem. Say more. Privacy laws are way behind. Well, uh, we have privacy laws that, ex that assume a kind of an idealized system where, where there are where you don't have all this information moving automatically mm -hmm. around the web. It's really un, it's completely unrealistic. Uh -huh. And so you need to have some kind of materiality mechanism or intent mechanism for violating privacy because in many respects, it's basically impossible for companies providing certain kinds of services effectively to, quote, honor privacy in the sense of being completely invisible and all that. So... Um, privacy laws are also a problem because they're one of the reasons why these maniacs, like the guy who just shot everybody in Arizona, uh, don't get called on the carpet. Uh, in the case of the Virginia Tech shooter a few years ago, uh, he was known by the clinicians and others on campus to be a threat, mm -hmm. but they thought it would violate his rights to privacy if they called up other people and told them. So he went and murdered 35 people. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, there's this, you know, again, it's in service of these ideals that aren't really realistic in, uh, in, 
in modern society, we're all living together. You really do need to have these open lines of communication. Yeah, I can see the fast-moving technology. We're, we're going to keep renegotiating whatever the social contract is trying to be with privacy uh, for years yet to come. We will, and, and that's natural, just like our views of auto safety change and mm. everything else. And sometimes they go too far and they need to be pulled back. Okay, a big uh, final question from Cynthia. Is there a standard common sense? I know it's implied, but how common is common sense? Um, really sort of whatever, I think. Um, uh, <laughs> um, no, you know, people, you know, they're... they're um, there's a wonderful book by Robert Wright a few years ago called The Moral Animal, who said, isn't it amazing what a, what a perfect um, record of good judgment each of us has? Uh, and, uh, but, of course, the lesson that every child learns watching her parents is that there, are, there can be very many different views on the same issue. Um, so common sense is whatever somebody believes in their training is makes sense in the circumstances. And it can be, in the same situation, there can be very many sensible solutions. Mm -hmm. But what the studies also tell us is if people believe that they are free to do what they believe is right, mm -hmm. they're going to stand up, This I think this is appropriate in dealing with this child in the classroom, whatever it is, or in this particular wind farm. That's a good thing. If you make people believe that they have to justify their decisions in a kind of legalistic way, can you prove that you, can you prove that Johnny threw the pencil first, if you're the mm -hmm. teacher or, or whatever? You make people make worse judgments. You drive them from the smart part of their brain where they're focusing on how do I make something happen mm -hmm. to this kind of thin veneer of conscious logic where people are saying, how will I justify that I did this? And pretty soon, uh, or as Michael Polanyi wrote a book about this called Personal Knowledge, a great book from 1950, he said, a pianist can't play the piece if she's thinking about how she's hitting the notes. If you make somebody self-conscious, they actually can't, in many cases, use good judgment. And so common sense mm -hmm. is people doing whatever's in them, they will succeed or fail, and in my world, on balance, they will be held accountable. Not for every failure, but on, on, on balance for, for, for how good a job they do. And so there's no such thing as the right answer. The reason we got in this mess, we thought there was a right answer. There is no right answer. Freedom's not an instruction manual. It's an argument. It's, it's, it's an it, argument. No, it's a hypothesis. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a negotiation. It's it, a, well, no, it's a hypothesis. I believe on. this is right. You believe mm -hmm. that's right. If, if we both have to agree, we'll, we'll come up with a solution. If I'm in charge, which is my preferred position, I simply, I simply make the decision, mm -hmm. and I'm accountable to somebody who's in charge of me. But well, but, famously, where does good judgment come? It comes from experience. Where does experience come from? Bad judgment. So. I mean, trial and error. You're at, completely. Mm -hmm. So how do you learn in life? Mm -hmm. From error. Okay. From saying things that are inappropriate. You've been, I haven't learned that lesson, but most people. <laughs> And, and, and trial and error definitely this is the path of, um, to all success mm -hmm. requires error. 
It requires a tolerance forever. It requires giving people the chance to err. And the chance to lose their job. And if they're really bad at it, the chance to lose their job. But in any sensible system, you're judging people on, you know, on balance. In other mm -hmm. words, so teachers will make mistakes. All, we all make mistakes all the time. The question is, are we on balance good at what we do? Whereas we have a system today that assumes it's a kind of perfection. It's this phony perfection. Mm -hmm. And it's whatever the rule book says. Mm -hmm. And the rule book, in fact, is central planning. It's lousy. It causes failure in the name of uniformity. It's not what freedom was supposed to be. And, and the terror of modern government is we've turned it into something. We've asked it to do all these really important jobs. And we've asked all these really good people who go, many, you know, many good people spend their lives in government, mm -hmm. you know, trying to do what's, to make the bus system work or whatever. And we've given them impossible conditions or very difficult conditions to do that. It sounds like part of what you want is the, um, is a kind of an action-oriented, make something happen. It, you know, you learn from the mistakes as you go. If you spend all of your time and cover your ass mode with the bureaucracy, and very little time in making something happen, then the system grinds to a halt. But if you can somehow move that balance toward make something happen, and of course cover your ass, but don't do it as a full-time job. <laughs> right. It, it, you know, it, it's, sure. Is this what we're asking our culture to shift to push? Make something I, yeah, happen? Yeah, I think so. And you know, if, if for important judgments, you, you wouldn't want to, I have this argument with the head of the teachers union, I'm not saying give the principal unfettered discretion to fire any teacher. Mm -hmm. Let's have a site-based committee of parents and teachers who have a veto power. It's just not a legal proceeding. It's not all these things are matters of judgment. It's not a matter of proof. Mm -hmm. So presumptively, the, teacher, the principal ought to be able to manage the school. If he's making a decision for some horrible reason because he didn't get sexual favors from the teacher or, or because he's just has a hang-up, but everybody else loves the teacher, his decision in my world could be vetoed. You can have a, but it's quite efficient. It's his judgment with a veto power, because we've decided that's an important judgment. It's fine. It's still a matter of judgment. You still move forward. Mm -hmm. Today, there's no decision mm -hmm. being, being made, and the result is we get to this, you know, all the teachers find themselves trapped in this, you know, horrific, horrific bureaucracy filling out forms all night long. So everybody here wants to change the system. Everybody <clears throat> outside the room wants to change the system. Does it take bankruptcy first or climate change or uh, will it be done piecemeal or is a bloody revolution in hand? What's it take to uh, make anything happen? Political here? science say that change like this does not happen incrementally. It happens in big bites. The branch breaks. It, that's what happened in the rights revolution. That's what happened in the progressive era. People work for years to make those things happen, but they happened in a relatively small period of time. In each when case, the change, there was a groundswell plus some strong leadership. Is that right? Yes. So that combination is a what change it takes. of values. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, we do need leadership, and we need leaders. And we're talking, but you know, we have a lot of people who are generally respected, the Al Simpsons and Bill Bradleys of the world, who mm -hmm. are part of our group. Um, but it takes more than that. We really do require, you know, we're, we're, we need the active citizens, citizen leaders, heads of rotary clubs, business leaders to come together behind this idea. 
We, we need to create a movement. That's why we've hired these people to create this new web home for mm -hmm. the beginnings of this movement. Um, because you can't just talk about it. You can't, rock, you can't just write op-ed, you know, I write op-ed pages, you know, but editorials mm -hmm. all the time. You can't just write about it and talk about it. You need people to get together and to corner political leaders and say, you have to do this. And if you don't, I'm not going to support you, and I'm going to support somebody who is going to do this. Okay, so to make a movement get momentum, it needs some early victories. What's an early victory that's uh, achievable? Uh, well, I'm not sure you do need early victories. What were the early victories of the Civil Rights Movement? Um, so, um, you know, we have a, a proposal that in healthcare to create special health courts that everybody's for, the consumer groups, the victims' rights groups, all the doctors. President Obama wrote a letter in favor of it earlier in the year, and it's not happening. Why is it not happening? Because it's a B-level wonky, it's a good, but mm -hmm. B-level wonky reform proposal, and there's one interest group, the trial lawyers, that gives $50 million to the Democratic Party, and so whoever your congressperson is in this district, I've forgotten her name, and <laughs> Harry Reid, refused to let the bipartisan proposals to do special health courts, supported by everybody in health care, every legitimate interest in health care, be part of the bill. And so, um, so somebody, you know, so, so I... Okay, so what's an A-level emotional, uh, that, that's B-level wonky, what's A-level emotional that people can get behind? Oh, I think, um, I think, if we completely debureaucratize schools, restore a culture of order mm -hmm. and respect, which means you get rid of all the kind of rules of, around hearings and all that kind of stuff. You have different mm -hmm. safeguards. Um, you bulldoze the bureaucracy and you create an effective accountability mechanism. That, that formula, even if you just did it in a couple of schools, mm -hmm. would be transformative. We complete, would be completely transformative. Um, and, and, and there's That's some true. other, and that could be done largely locally. Yeah. You know, and unlike some of these other things which require federalization. And it is emotional. It is long-term because you're talking about right. the next generation. Okay, that's a good one. Right. Let's fix the schools. Thank you. Great. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.